World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Getting in a car is, by the numbers, more dangerous than climbing on a plane or a train. In one country, though, you're taking a notably higher risk. We ask why so many road deaths occur in India and what measures are being taken to reduce them. And these days, the question of who's concerned by climate change is one that's shaped by ideology and politics. But our data team has dug through surveys to find two other factors that explain a great deal of the divide in climate change fears. First up, though. A Russian artillery attack at the weekend pounded Ukraine's southern city of Mykolaiv, leaving firefighters working flat out to douse the flames. President Volodymyr Zelensky described it as the most brutal shelling of the entire period of the full-scale war. Russia's campaign in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine seems to be running out of steam, so the focus is again on the south, Mykolaiv and nearby Kherson, the largest city the Russians have occupied. Ukrainian troops are making gains in a counteroffensive to retake Kherson. British intelligence said Ukraine's strike on an ammunition train would probably damage Russia's ability to resupply troops in Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014. But Mykolaiv is still very much in Russia's sights. Yesterday, missiles leveled a supermarket and damaged an apartment block in the city. Attacks have reportedly begun again today. Mykolaiv has faced relentless shelling. In the first five months of the war, there have only been 21 days without any Russian bombs, according to the city's mayor. Piotr Zalewski is our Turkey correspondent, who's been traveling in Ukraine and went to Mykolaiv before last weekend's attack. Most of the shelling starts at around 3 o'clock in the morning, sometimes 2 o'clock in the morning, and lasts a couple of hours at least. But there also is shelling during the day. Even on a quiet day, you will have air raid sirens every few hours. But the city's population has grown so accustomed to the shelling that people don't really budge when they hear the air sirens. People I spoke to told me that when they queue for water, because the city's water supply has been uh, disrupted, sometimes they will not even leave their place in the queue for fear of losing their place. And what kind of state is is Mykolaiv in after that kind of relentless shelling for these months? According to the governor, Vitaly Kim, the number of buildings damaged or destroyed by the shelling is at least 7,800. 480,000 people were living in Mykolaiv before the start of the invasion. At least half of them have since left. The city is far from destroyed, but... Everywhere you turn, you will see a university building, even a hospital, 
some residential buildings damaged or destroyed. And what did Mr. Kim tell you about uh, Mikolaev's fortunes going forward and, and how the fight is going? Mikolaev was briefly occupied uh, by the Russians at the start of the war. Ukrainians managed to repel those invading Russian forces. Mr. Kim said that the city is too well defended at this point for the Russians to try to take it. But he did say that the authorities were having to contend with Russian informants. He also said that the authorities were able to catch some informants, but it was difficult to establish guilt because it was also difficult to find the necessary evidence. Uh, we need to have uh, proofs and we have justice. It's not such easy. And it's, it's taken some time some period of time to to get these proofs. Um, but what evidence do you have that this is happening? I mean, have you... Uh, yes, I, I have it a lot. Yes. Okay. It is screenshots, it's information from phones, from cells, from uh, mails. There are secrets how we're doing it. So there are many uh, different ways to get that information. And how much are the Russians paying for this information? 150... Uh, 1,050, 500 uh, grievance. Less, 50 bucks. For what? For one piece of information? For yeah, the, yes, information about locations. the location of military forces. Okay. He mentioned that he is weighing the possibility of around the clock a curfew uh, to be imposed for a few days to try to weed out some of the informants. Now, the Russians might entertain hopes of occupying Mikolaev, but presumably the main reason why they are shelling the city and positions around the city is because Mikolaev has become uh, the staging ground of a Ukrainian counteroffensive to retake uh, Kherson, which is about 50 kilometers south of uh, Mikolaev. And what's happening there and what, what's happening with that counteroffensive? So Kherson is the biggest city captured by uh, Russian forces so far. But the offensive to try to retake Kherson is now picking up steam. One of the signs is a series of Ukrainian strikes against uh, Russian supply lines and uh, bridges which connect the city to Russia's southern strongholds and the Crimea. Uh, which is where pretty much all of supplies, the equipment, and the troops are coming in. And on July 27th, the Ukrainians, using the American-supplied uh, multiple launch rocket systems, known as HIMARS, pummeled the main bridge Russia has used to send troops and supplies into Kherson from Crimea. Uh, similar strikes have wiped out Russian munition dumps near Kherson, as well as a number of S-300 missile batteries Russia has been using to attack Mikolaev. Drone and artillery fire has also turned scores of Russian attack helicopters into scrap metal at an airport in Chordobayevka, just north of Kherson. Vitaly Kim told me that Ukraine was determined to take back Kherson and that it has the means to do so. How optimistic are you about uh, retaking Kherson? Mm, pretty optimistic. Has that optimism changed in the last few weeks? In a good way, yes. <laughs> uh, okay, why? Why are you more optimistic? Because we have an order, because we have weapons and the will to uh, take Kherson back. So it's, it's easy to understand Mr. Kim's optimism there, but what, what, what's your take on this? What would it take for Ukraine to, to retake Kherson? 
So military analysts will tell you that to retake Kherson, uh, the Ukrainians will need to keep hitting enemy bases, cut off Russian supply lines, and to push Russian troops back against the banks of the Dnieper River. This no longer seems very far-fetched, largely thanks to the HIMARS, which have ensured that none of the Russian supply lines to Kherson are safe from Ukrainian rockets. Some commentators reckon the Ukrainians might be able to retake Kherson in two, three weeks, but everything depends, well, a lot depends on the situation in the Donbass in the east. If a Russian offensive there stalls, Ukraine may be able to send more reinforcements to the south. Ukrainian troops back from the front line say that they are making gains, but they still lack artillery, they still lack air defense systems, and they still lack munitions. And to your mind, what would the the importance, the significance of retaking Kherson be for Ukraine? Well, this would be a major strategic and moral boost for Ukraine, especially given recent setbacks in the Donbass. It would also place the Ukrainians in a position to try to retake areas bridging the country's mainland and Crimea, uh, occupied by the Russians since 2014. The fear is that Russia will not give up Kherson easily. According to Britain's defense ministry, the Russian army has been reinforcing defensive positions throughout the south. And Russia also seems to be paving the way to annex the region through sham referendums to be organized in September. Vladimir Putin may rather reduce Kherson to rubble than to abandon the city. Thanks very much for joining us, Piotr. Thank you for having me. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So for most people visiting India, there's a lot of culture shock as soon as you pull out of the airport. The roads are total mayhem. Drivers ignore lane markings. You have pedestrians in the middle of highways, all sorts of cattle. And then on top of that, you have various sorts of vehicles. Overloaded lorries, rickshaws, scooters with about five people riding on them. And everyone's just jostling for space. That leads to some pretty troubling statistics when it comes to road crashes. The Indian government reckons that about every three and a half minutes, someone dies on the Indian roads. Avantika Chulkati is an international correspondent for The Economist. The truth is that's probably a vast underestimate. The World Health Organization reckons the number is double that. And it's not just because India's got a huge population. China, for example, has roughly the same number of people as India, 
but its authorities count just 58,000 fatalities every year. To give you a sense of things, India is home to just 10% of the world's registered vehicles, but it accounts for 22% of traffic deaths. So what's behind this colossal death rate? What about India makes it such a dangerous place to drive or be around drivers? Infrastructure is the most obvious issue in India. Roads are terribly designed. Motorcycles and scooters make up about 70% of the vehicles in some cities. Those two-wheelers, as they're called, are about 30 times more likely to end up in an accident than a car. But there's very little to sort of accommodate for them. There are definitely not separate lanes and special signage. There's not seatbelts or airbags. Roads don't have markings or crash barriers. Infrastructure is a huge issue here. And what about the drivers? You've described a chaotic scene here. Are they also part of the problem? The biggest issue probably is that they're not educated to drive on these roads safely. There was one survey in 2017 that suggested about 6 in 10 drivers on India's roads hadn't actually sat a test in order to drive. There's all sorts of estimates about how cheaply you can buy a license. In recent years, that sort of bribery has got more difficult as you've got digital government. But that's only for new drivers. You still have a vast number of people on the roads with licenses that are forged or bought. For example, 90% of truck drivers in India, they admit they had no formal training before they started, which is partly a reflection of just how basic tests are, even when someone does take one. I spoke to Piyush Tiwari, who started a non-profit organization called Save Life Foundation after he lost his cousin in a car crash. And he was basically talking me through just how dangerous these roads can be. What we fail to realize is that vehicles are fundamentally weapons. And if you put that weapon in the hands of an untrained person, they will end up injuring or killing someone. So I think the problem that India is facing with road crashes is very similar to what the US is facing with gun control, right? Is that there is... And the trouble is that once a crash occurs, the healthcare system just doesn't help these people well enough. Official estimates suggest about half of those who are killed on Indian roads could have been saved if they received medical care in time. But the emergency services aren't there. The trauma care is scarce. Most people can't actually afford it. And those who are really at risk are poor working age men who often don't even have insurance. So a lot of this feels as if it could be put at the feet of the Indian government. So the Indian government is trying to take action. They've set a target of halving road crashes between 2020 and 2030. There's been a lot of new legislation put into place. So in places there are fines and prison sentences for traffic violations. People on two wheelers now can have their license suspended if they're not wearing a helmet. Very importantly, there's also a new Good Samaritan law that basically guarantees a passerby that if they stop to help someone involved in a crash, they won't be harassed by the police, they won't be asked to pay hospital bills if they help victims, because corruption and bribery and blame around the police is a really big concern in India. And so the kinds of measures that the government has taken, are they making a difference? So the truth is, in a country like India, The legislation is of no use without the implementation. And you can roam the streets of India right now and find countless people riding two-wheelers without a helmet, sort of four or five people loaded on the back. You can see 
people who look way too young behind the wheel. Two years after the Good Samaritan law was introduced, one survey found that about 60% of people who assisted someone who was injured in a road crash still reported being questioned by the police. So, you know, these laws aren't being implemented and it's costing India a lot. The World Bank reckons about 7.5% of GDP. So what can be done then? The truth is that what you need to change in order for India's roads to become safer, sort of healthcare, education, infrastructure, it's a big development project. So in my view, the starting point has to be data collection. The trouble in India is that India doesn't really know where these crashes are occurring, why they're occurring. And so you've seen states, for example, Tamil Nadu, going about creating a database of accidents. They did this about a decade ago, and that's allowed them to really change things. For example, they have moved their emergency care centers, so they're really near the most dangerous stretches of road. That's really reduced response times after incidents occur, and traffic deaths in the state, thanks to all of these changes, have fallen by about a quarter in the five years before the pandemic. So data really has to be the starting point, but it's going to come very gradually as the country develops. Thanks very much for joining us, Avantika. Thanks for having me, Jason. We spend a lot of time on the show talking about the disastrous events increasingly associated with climate change, from devastating wildfires tearing through Europe this summer. Fire season has hit earlier this year. Near the Spanish city of Malaga, a forest fire has forced thousands of people to evacuate. To the heat waves that have killed more than a thousand people in Portugal and Spain and smashed historical records in Britain. The UK shattered its record high temperature today. That's right, it is the latest European nation to be hit by intense heat and dry weather. London hit a record high. It's no surprise by now that not everyone is convinced that all this is really worth worrying about. What's interesting is what factors shape those beliefs, or lack of them. Sarah Bush and Amanda Clayton, two political scientists, recently published a paper in which they looked at people's attitudes to climate change. Dolly Seton is a data journalist at The Economist. The duo drew on nine cross-national surveys and focus groups that together covered more than 100 countries between 2010 and 2021. Through this analysis, they found that two factors can quite strongly predict concern about the warming world, GDP and gender. Let's start with GDP then. What did they find? So what they found was that people surveyed in the poorer countries rated climate change as a more serious problem than people in the wealthier countries. So people in poor countries were also more likely to respond that they expect to be personally affected by climate change. And unfortunately, that's not that surprising. Poor countries tend to have less resources to be prepared. They're less prepared and more vulnerable to extreme weather, such as heat waves and floods and hurricanes. And the other factor, what about gender? Gender is actually probably the more surprising finding. So first of all, it's worth saying that most people, regardless of gender, recognize that climate change is a threat. But what they found was that in more wealthy countries, the men were more likely than the women to say that they were not concerned about climate change. And how big is the gap between the genders? Well, let's take America. So in one survey by the Pew Research Center, which is a think tank, 20% of men said that climate change is not a problem 
while only 8% of women agreed. So that's quite a large gap. But then what they found was that this gap between men and women narrows as GDP per person decreases. So in, in Britain, which has a smaller per capita GDP than America, 11% of men answered that they were not concerned about climate change compared with 4% of women. And then the gap narrows further when you get to South Africa, for example, and the, the difference is just two percentage points. And it, and it keeps going down like that. In Uganda, one of the world's poorest countries, the pattern actually narrowly reverses. And 2.4% of the women surveyed said that they were not concerned about climate change compared with only 1.7% of men. It sounds as if it's a fairly robust trend there. Why do you think that is the case? Yeah, it is, which is interesting, right? So it's hard to pin it down to any one thing. We know the reasons for the gap are complex, but it's important to note that the gap in concern about the climate in the wealthy countries between men and women persists regardless of their level of education, their household income, or their political views. So these characteristics alone don't explain the difference. It's not about political party or you know something like that. So that being said, studies have found that men in rich countries have a bigger carbon footprint than women in terms of, for example, the kinds of cars that they drive or eating more red meat. So they may feel that they have more to lose from policies that limit emissions. And the authors did actually find that men surveyed in wealthy countries were 50% more likely than women to say that they feared some kind of financial toll you know, from taxes or at the pump from green policies. But of course, even if this is the case, it goes without saying that dismissing the risks of climate change is dangerously short-sighted. And as we've seen very clearly in the last several weeks alone, the consequences for everyone of a warming world are going to be a lot more painful than just a, a few more cents at the pump. Dolly, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.